0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn it to Second Timothy chapter 2. We'll begin there. And then as we've done, similar to the way we've done things the last couple of weeks, is we'll actually we'll go from there to another portion of Scripture we're going to look at together. Um, but I want to begin in a similar way as I have um, over the last couple of weeks. Just reminding you of a passage of Scripture that I pray is familiar. Um, if it's not familiar, get familiar with it. Um, it's really the heartbeat of what the church is called to do. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus' final commissioning of his disciples and and delivering to them once and for all the task that he has for the church, make disciples, teach others, baptize others according to their profession of faith in Christ. And so thus far in our conversation of Discipleship 101, we've seen that If we're going to make disciples, we're going to need people who are born again. You must first be a disciple if you are going to be a disciple. So you must have trusted Christ for salvation. The Bible is not overly concerned with, you know, necessarily what questions you can answer, how much information you know. The Bible is very clear in its concern when it relates to humanity is whether or not it is born again. Have you been born again? We've touched on this a couple of weeks back, so I'm going to kind of leave that there. And last week, we looked at this reality that if we're going to make disciples, we need people who have been born again, and the gospel must be preeminent. And remember that preeminent just means it's given a position of importance. It's, it's a priority. And so, in short, we have people who have trusted Christ for salvation, and the gospel is what is most important. And again, we summarized that if you're involved in a growth group, one of the questions over this past week was in, in terms of the gospel and what it is and how would you share that with somebody. And we looked last week at what I would submit as one of the most succinct references of what the gospel is in all of Scripture. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth 1 Corinthians 15, says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance... Remember, that was the idea of preeminence, that which is most important. And Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance what I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And our growth group this week, the gentleman who was leading it, he said, I need a 30-second elevator pitch of the gospel. Well, hear me when I say this. There's your pitch. There's your 30-second pitch. Christ died. Why? For our sins in accordance with the Scripture. In that one sentence, we present to the hearer, you are separated from God. You are guilty before God because of sin. So Christ died in accordance to the Scriptures. Furthermore, it tells us that on the third day, he rose in accordance with the Scriptures and that by faith and trusting in what the Scriptures teach, about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be born again and brought into a right relationship with God. These are ingredients one and two of making disciples, being born again and the preeminence of the gospel. i want to give you a third ingredient this morning. Third ingredient. I want to start with an illustration, just as I've done in recent weeks. And I actually want to keep with the illustration of cooking in the kitchen. Okay, And so as we consider cooking in the kitchen, you might recall about a month ago when we started this, I talked about this reality of deviating from a recipe. And, and when we deviate, it makes it harder to, to reproduce. But what I want us to see together this morning is the reality that if we're going to make disciples, there must be a commitment to the recipe, Okay, Much like if we're going to bake in the kitchen, there must be a commitment to the recipe that you have to bake whatever you're going to bake. So let's say, for example, this morning there's a a silent auction coming up, bake sale. You want to make something? You can make chocolate chip cookies. And if you make chocolate chip cookies, there's a number of ingredients that are necessary. And one of the primary ingredients for making chocolate chip cookies, unless they're sugar-free, is sugar. You got to have sugar to make chocolate chip cookies cookies. Now imagine with me, just like we did last week, I'm in the kitchen. Last week I was baking a cake. This week I'm going to bake some cookies. I don't know when the last time I baked anything was. It usually doesn't turn out. But I'll tell you what, my nine-year-old, she makes some killer shoe fly muffins. That was just for free. So if y'all got a hankering for shoe fly muffins, (laughs) we still don't know why they're called that. Joy could help you out. So imagine with me, I'm in the kitchen set to make some chocolate chip cookies. And I established that my recipe calls for one cup of sugar, and I don't have it. Whatever the reason is, I don't have enough, I don't have any at all, I don't have sugar. What do I do now? Well, I'll use extra flour. I'm missing a half a cup of sugar of the one cup that it calls for, so I'll use the extra half cup of flour. You ever had a cookie that had too much flour in it? You want another one? No, they're terrible, okay? Maybe I just make it with no sugar. I don't put extra flour, but I'll just make it with no sugar. You ever had a chocolate chip cookie with no sugar that's not prepared as though it's supposed to not have sugar, I should clarify? It's not good. It's, it's, it's not delicious. It's not something that you would want to eat. And what I want you to understand is that any deviation from the recipe is not going to create the results that we want. If we have a recipe for chocolate chip cookies, any deviation from that, it might turn out okay, but it's not going to be what you set out to make it. And so the surest way to accomplish your task or to make what you desire to make is to follow the recipe for whatever it is that you want to make. The results of making cookies with no sugar or not enough sugar are nasty, and we might say the results are catastrophic. It's a waste. So if we're going to make cookies, that's just ice sliding off the building. Don't worry about it. It's been, doing, it's been doing it all morning. If we're going to make good chocolate chip cookies, we must commit to the recipe as intended. I remind you what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, Again, that was the preeminence of the gospel. And the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The word of God intends a few things to be included in our recipe for making disciples. And you might recall going back to last week, we actually took verse 2 and I told you we're going to break it in half. Last week we looked at the first part, that is what you've heard from me. Okay, that was the preeminence of the gospel. But then we see the last last part of that, it says, entrust what you've heard from me to faithful men who will be be able to teach others also. As we've noted, born-again believers, the preeminence of the gospel are necessary. And this morning, I want to give you ingredient number three. Before we do that, I want to take just a moment. I want to go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, then we'll pick up. Father, just thankful for... Your goodness to us, thankful for the sunshine today, God, for the rising temperatures, Uh, just thankful for the reminder, God, that each and every day is a gift from you and it's a new day. And so, Father, today as we've gathered together and we look into your word, we pray that you would, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we pray for hearts that are motivated by the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would help us to see that this task of making disciples is not reserved for a few. It's for all who name the name of Christ. And so, God, give us understanding that we might uh, know what it is to make disciples and that we might commit to this process as your word would call us to. God, may we be sensitive to where and how your word leads us in this process. Above all, God, we pray that you will be glorified today through all that's said and done here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I talked a lot about a commitment to a recipe, a commitment, and, and, and perhaps you gathered a a theme as we we sang together this morning. I would submit to you that ingredient number three is faithfulness. You can have born-again people, and you can have the preeminence of the gospel, but without faithfulness, it's going to be really, really hard to make disciples. Paul says, entrust. He says, entrust what you have heard from me to faithful men. Entrust what you have heard. So to entrust is to give something into somebody else's care. And I'm going to give you an example. There's a number of examples of this, but we talk about this idea of entrusting. It's recognizing that I have something of great worth. Remember, if we're going to make disciples, then the gospel must be uh, preeminent. Okay, it has to be priority number one. It's at the very top of the list. So what we have to understand is the gospel is the most valuable of all things that the church can possess. The good news that sinful man is reconciled to a holy God by grace through faith. This is priority in the church, It's to be priority in the church. And Paul says, I want you to take that priority, Timothy, and I want you to give it into the care of other people. But not just anybody, Timothy. Give it into the care of people who will be faithful with it. So you entrust it into their care, recognizing the value and the worth of it. If the church is going to be faithful to the task and reproducing itself and helping others grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus, helping others see the truth of God's word and their need to be reconciled and then to, to grow in that, to be more like Christ, to be, trans, or to be transformed into the image of God. Again, we don't become God, right? But the whole process, the Bible refers to as sanctification, is growing to be more like Jesus, we do this through discipleship, living life together with what the Word of God teaches in fellowship and in community. And if we're going to be successful in our quest, we must have faithful people. A uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury once said, the church is only one generation away from extinction. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? The church is only ever one generation away from extinction. And it's interesting because the Archbishop of Canterbury who said this, obviously he's referring to the church in England, and I don't know how much you know about the the state of the church in England. It's not good. It's not good. The church is floundering in England and in Europe as a whole. And his message was clear. The reproduction of faithful people is a must to continue to prolong the church, fulfilling its mission of making disciples. If we stop at any point making disciples, we are on the brink of extinction. So this task of making disciples is of tantamount importance. And so if we want to carry this on, if we want to reproduce faithful people, we must entrust the gospel to faithful people. I don't know, as I tried to think over the course of this week, perhaps the best example I could come up with of entrusting something or, or, of worth or value to someone else is that in the area of financial stewardship, right? I think most of us understand this this picture, right? Like you, you work, you save money, and then you have a financial advisor and you give him your money or her your money and they invest it in hopes of helping you to build a nest egg and be able to retire. Now, nowadays, you can do this on your own, right, with all the apps and everything available, but there was a time when it wasn't that easy. You, you had a financial advisor who helped do your financial planning for you. And simply, here's how it worked. You worked, you gave your money to people that you trusted, and, and you trusted them to not only save your money, but to turn a profit off your money as they invested it, whereby building your retirement your 401k. And perhaps... The greatest example of a financial advisor, although I will tell you it's not a great one, but that most of us will resonate with, was a man named Bernie Madoff. And so what makes Bernie Madoff a famous example of a financial advisory is not the, the money that he made for others, but the fact that he scammed people out of what is believed to be approximately $65 billion. So I'll paint a picture for you. You worked hard, you saved money, you have money taken out of your check. Every time you get paid, you give it to this financial advisor, advisor to invest it and build your portfolio and your 401k. Only this guy was taking your money and he wasn't investing it. He was running what was called a Ponzi scheme. And the way a Ponzi scheme would work is I would start over here with person one and two. And I would convince person one and two to invest $500 promising a return to them. And then I would meet with person three and four, and I would convince them to make an investment of $1,000 apiece. And then I would pay what appeared to be returns to person one and two from the surplus that I got from persons three and four. You tracking with me? All the extra, meanwhile, was going into Bernie's pocket. I do want to say one thing that I found really interesting. I did not know this. Maybe you knew, and, and, and Bernie Madoff kind of came back to life last, well, not came back to life, came back to light last year, actually, when he died in, in prison and in, um, I believe it was April of 21. But you know who turned Bernie Madoff in? His sons. And he came clean, and he said, I've been seeing all these people, and when the, 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 the market crashed in 2008, and all these people became frantic as they watched the market plummet, they wanted to withdraw their money. And guess what happened? Bernie didn't have enough money to pay people the their retirements that they had been giving him. And this is how he became outed. And so when he knew he couldn't get away with it and the pressure was too much, he confided in his sons, who, by the way, ran a legitimate business for Bernie Madoff. Like they had another business that was legitimate. The kids, the family, to this day, it is believed that none of them had any idea what he was doing. They believed everything was on the up and up. And when his sons found out, they turned him in. And he was arrested the next day, and then he was found guilty and sentenced. I believe it was 151 years in prison. Again, he died in 2021 in prison. People entrusted their money to Bernie Madoff. The problem with entrusting your money to Bernie Madoff was he was an unfaithful man. He was only concerned with the advancement of Bernie Madoff. It wasn't about the things that he said he was going to do. It wasn't about the things that he had told people or the promises that he had made. He was untrustworthy, and therefore, he should not have been given anybody's money. And I do want to say this, right? That's not the fault. I always got to be careful, right? That's not the fault of people who were deceived. The guy was a master manipulator. Literally, his own family had no clue what he was doing. But at the end of the day, the consequences of people entrusting their money to Bernie Madoff were catastrophic. People were left with nothing when all of this came to light. They'd been saving their whole lives, believing they were investing with a financial advisor for decades, only to find out they had nothing. They were producing fake documents, all kinds of statements, making it look like people were making buku dollars. And and I got to pause here because you might go with me back to last week. When we talked about when churches don't have the gospel as the preeminent thing, one of the things we talked about was the focus upon things that ought not be the focus. Well, we had this many people in church, and this many decisions were made, this many baptisms took place. It looks good, don't it? It looks just like a a, a financial record that's been produced just to give the people who receive the record a little bit of peace and security. But at the end of the day, those people were left with nothing. I will remind you, the church is one generation away from extinction. If we are not focusing on the thing that is to be priority, the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeking and striving to help people know and understand the gospel, believe the gospel by faith, and become faithful people with said gospel, we are going towards extinction. And someday, somebody might look back and they might say, well, look at all these churches. They put out all of these numbers and all of these statistics. What happened? We were duped. We looked at phony financial statements and found our comfort and security that we were doing our job as a church by the, the, the satisfaction that they brought to us. And so the gospel has to be preeminent, and we need faithful people. And so what does a faithful person look like, right? Because like, I think that's a legitimate question. Some of you might be sitting here right now and say, well, when you talk about a faithful person, pastor, what, what does that mean? Well, the first thing I want you to know when we talk about faithful people is it's not what I think. Okay? What I think a faithful person is is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what the Word of God says a faithful person is. And so to try to answer this question, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14, Jesus is speaking to the people in a parable. In other words, that means he is, kind of like, it's kind of like speaking in a riddle. He's telling them a story to convey a message that he wants them to have or that he wants them to know, okay? But as we'll see, everybody doesn't always understand the parables, and that was part of the reason Jesus spoke in them. That's why he said things like, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He who has understanding, understands. So here's what he says in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, ah, he does what? Entrust. It will be like an owner who's going on a journey, calls his servants and entrusts to them his property, the things that he has that are valuable. And to one he gives five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and, we will ha- and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, this is a parable, as we've said. Jesus is speaking in the form of a story in, in an effort to communicate. And so basically what happens is there's an owner of property, Who's going away for whatever reason. And so he calls his servants to him and he entrusts portions of his property or his belongings to these servants. And the Bible tells us that what he entrusts to them is talents. Okay? Now, talents would be um, basically, they're like silver bars just this, this money. And the, the, the term that they would use in this context would be talents. And they were, they were worth a ton of money. They were very, very wealthy. So the one who had five talents, he was entrusted with a lot of stuff. There was a lot of significance to be given five talents, to be given two, even to be given one. And so he gives these talents to his servants for the purpose of looking over them while he is gone. All right? And again, I want to point out He entrusted these talents to his servants. The idea of delivering something to someone that they might exercise care over it. Okay, So he entrusts these talents to these men. And in short, what happens in this parable is some of the servants were faithful and one of them was not. The property owner came home, he returned, and it was time for a reckoning. What have you done with what I entrusted to you while I was gone? And the expectation of the owner is not that they necessarily would have doubled their talents, but that whatever they would have done, when the master returned home, it would have been such that they would have been able to be found faithful. So again, two servants took what was given, Bible tells us they doubled it, they give it back to their master, and he utters the phrase, well done, good, and faithful servant. And when the third servant gives his talent to the master, he was not greeted with a well done, good, and faithful servant. In fact, the reaction was the exact opposite. The unfaithful servant was condemned for his slothful behavior. And in the parable, Jesus says that the worthless servant, the worthless servant was cast into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point is that while the master is away, that is Jesus, believers of Christ, that is those who profess faith in Christ claiming to have been born again, should strive to be found faithful when he returns as he has promised. So I want to try to unpack, I'm going to give you three applications of this parable in just a second, but I want you to try to understand this parable that Jesus is telling is literally the picture that we've been unpacking. The master is Jesus, and he has something of great value and worth. It's the gospel, and he says, I've given it to the church, and I'm gone. I'm going away. I haven't abandoned you, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and lo, I will be with you till the end of the age, is what we read in the Great Commission. But the master has went away and has promised to return. And those who name the name of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand something. A day of reckoning is coming. Every single human being is going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ and give account. And if you profess to be a believer in Jesus, the, 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 the barometer of whether or when you give account to Jesus, the barometer is how faithful were you with what you were given? This is not a matter of insignificance. This is a matter of great significance. Jesus has entrusted to his church the thing that is worthy above everything else, the gospel. And the expectation while he's away is that his church will be faithful with said gospel. And one day he will come back. And so if we're, if we're beginning to understand this idea of faithfulness, just by looking at this parable, I think there's some applications that we do well to make from it. And so I want to share a few things with you. Number one, and I just alluded to this, faithfulness is the expectation. Faithfulness is the expectation. While the master of the para, in the parable, while the master was away... He expected that his servants would care for the talents that were entrusted to them. Again, I, I knew I had it here in my notes. A talent was a block of silver that weighed between 58 and 80 pounds. Again, this is a matter of great significance. And so the master returns expecting that his servants have been faithful. And he returns to this this time of reckoning where it would be determined whether or not the servants had in fact been faithful. One of the things I want you to understand, because you might read this and you might say, Well, what was wrong with the third servants or the third servant? You know, He said, "Well, I, I knew my master to be harsh, and so I, I buried it in the ground because I didn't want to lose it. Well, I want you to notice, if you go back when Jesus responds to him, he actually tells, or tells this story of the master responding to the servant, it's actually asked, it's a question. Well, if you knew your master to be hard, and you knew your master to be reaping where he did not sow, bare minimum, you could have went to the bank and drew interest. Now here's what's interesting. What we actually find is there's a reason this man didn't go to the bank and, and, and put his talent in the bank and draw interest. He didn't believe the master was coming back. Because if he takes it to the bank, he puts it in the master's name, he's no longer the rightful owner of it. But if he buries it in the ground, he doesn't gain interest, but what he does gain is the talent when the master doesn't come back. So he buries the talent in the ground with the intention of keeping the thing of great value and worth for himself. And I want you to understand something. When you claim to have something of great value and worth and you keep it to yourself, it's unfaithful. And that was the issue with this third servant. He was unfaithful. He was acting not in faith <clears throat> that the servant would be good on his promise. Care for this talent, and I'm coming back. I don't really know if he's coming back, so I'm going to tuck this over here in this hole, and I'm just going to wait it out, and then I'm going to see. And then literally, I, I hope by me kind of walking through that, you can see. Can you, you, ever been, you ever been doing something you weren't supposed to do and you got caught? And you had to face, you know, like maybe you're a kid, right? And, and, and you, okay, we got three kids in our house and they squabble and they fight. You guys have all been there, right? And then you got the one kid who they know they've not done right here. They've kind of, they've, they've been wrong in this situation. It's that, oh, I got to stand before mom and dad. I got to give account for dealing with this wrong or, you know, committing this sin or whatever, right? And so they got to give account to their parents. That's not a good place to be. I don't know about you, but I don't like that feeling of that kind of you get that pit in your stomach and you know you got to deal with something hard. Can you imagine being that servant? The servant who stood by while Jesus looked at the first servant and said, well done, good and faithful servant. First servant starts sweating a little bit. I don't know, man, but this guy, he only made two talents, so it's probably not that big. He, he's, he's probably kind of like me. He's not that faithful. And Jesus takes the two talents from or the four talents from the second servant, and he says, What? Well done, good and faithful servant. And can you imagine being the third servant? Oh, no. I was expected to be found faithful, and I wasn't. And it's too late now. The third servant can't be like, okay, Jesus, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, or Master, I'm sorry, I keep calling him Jesus because Jesus is telling the parable, Master, I'm sorry, let me take your talent to the bank. I'll go put it in the bank now. Give me another chance. Now in the parable, the master says, do away with him. He's wicked. He's slothful. Faithfulness is the expectation. The second application I want you to understand is faithfulness is not measured by looking at others again the third servant was not unfaithful because he didn't produce as many talents as the other he was unfaithful because he didn't trust what the master had said he he didn't trust in the things that he had been taught and the fact that he didn't trust the things that he had been told by the master were evidenced by what he did not do this talent, whatever. I'm not that worried about what the master had to say. It's not that big of a deal if I'm not faithful with that talent. But we don't, we can't look at other people, right? Like I hope none of you aspire to preach like me or preach and teach like Aaron. I, 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 and, and not that it's bad to want to preach or teach, but I'm me, you're not. And I'm not you, Right? And, and so like, and even when Aaron and I were talking about this this week, you know, lots of times pastors be like, man, if I could just have a church like John MacArthur's, oh, if I could just have this many people reading the books that I'm writing or whatever, that doesn't mean that that's faithfulness. Faithfulness is not determined by whether or not I have as many followers as another pastor. Faithfulness for you is not determined by how much or how similar to me you can teach or preach or or Pastor Aaron or any number of our elders and anybody who you've heard teach and preach. That's not what determines faithfulness. Faithfulness is determined by doing what you know to do, by adhering to what you have been taught and then acting in faith to that, right? And acting in faith looks like obedience, That's why it's called, you act in faith, and thereby you're deemed faithful. The opposite of acting faithfully is acting recklessly. And that was how this third servant acted. He was reckless with the things that had been entrusted to him. He didn't care. Those other guys invested, or those other guys doubled their talents. I don't really care about mine. That's that's akin to saying, I don't really need to preach the gospel because the other people do it. It doesn't matter if I talk to people about Jesus. It doesn't matter if I live a testimony that brings glory to God because somewhere somebody else is doing it. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. Because I know sometimes I do, I am facetious and I say silly stuff. I'm not saying anything silly. The church needs faithful people. And faithfulness is not determined by how much somebody else is doing. Nobody is going to stand before Jesus Christ on the day of reckoning and be able to account to anything that I did for their faithfulness. We'll give account for ourselves. So faithfulness is not measured by looking at others. And this this last one might seem obvious. Faithfulness is not the same as faithlessness. They're not the same thing. There's a clear distinction between faithful and unfaithful. Just showing up is not faithful. Because the the third servant was there, wasn't he? He was there physically. He was in the presence of the master and the other servants, and he was cast into outer darkness. Because faithfulness is not simply showing up. And I've said this a number of times in recent weeks. And I'll say it again. I say it often. Like, I'm thrilled that you are all here. Each and every week, there are a number of you who, without fail, I look up and you're sitting there staring at me. But I want you to understand something that's not faithfulness. And when you stand before Jesus Christ on your day of reckoning, you cannot say, Well, I went to church, I showed up. I showed up, I was there physically. Because simply showing up is not faithfulness. As I've alluded to, faithfulness is acting in accord to what you know as taught in Scripture. And faithlessness is acting with disregard for what you know is taught in Scripture. It's really quite simple. I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence. It's really quite simple. Here's what's taught. You either do it or you don't. You're either faithful or you're not. Now, I'm thankful, as much as I make this black and white faithful or unfaithful, and I believe that's true, I do want you to understand, there's grace. God's grace is real, and it exists, and and none of us are perfect. And so as much as we may strive to do what the Word of God teaches, we're not going to do it perfect, and we're going to need the grace of God in our lives. But the grace of God is not permission to neglect what you know to be true. There's a difference between the weight and the pressure of a given circumstance in life causing you to respond inappropriately to your spouse than there is just mistreating your spouse. Those are different things. And I'm going to tell you, there's not a lot of grace for just mistreating your spouse. There's grace for everything. I hope you know what I mean when I say that. The grace is there. And God's design or desire is for folks to know and to understand that his grace is real. But the expectation is faithfulness. And any time the expectation for us is that, well, God's grace is there, that's a manifestation of unfaithfulness. Because the word of God says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? No, never, never Literally, in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the strongest form of no, it should never be that way. We never use God's grace as a reason to just be sinful or neglect what words, God's word so clearly teaches. Faithfulness is not the same as faithlessness. I want to finish with an illustration, and then I want to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper this morning. I don't know how closely um, you are or are not following the Winter Olympics. I really haven't been, but I do know that they recently started. When we think about this matter of faithfulness, I want you to to kind of go with me here. So one of the things that is, one of the most popular events of the Winter Olympics is figure skating. I don't know all the details of figure skating and how it works, but I understand that each participant has a certain amount of time to perform a routine where they do certain numbers of jumps and spins and they're graded according to the difficulty and they're graded according to how well they do the things they set out to do. And so imagine with me, you're watching figure skating at the 2022 Figure Olympics, and somebody comes out there, and I mean, they're cutting the ice, they're killing it, right? And they get all done, and everybody's clapping, and the judges give them great scores, and everybody's like, oh my goodness, that was phenomenal, it was impeccable, I've never seen anything like it. And then the next person gets up, and it's their turn to figure skate, and that little horn goes off, beep, and then their music starts going, you are know, supposed to be skating or whatever, and they just do this. They just stand there for, I don't know, what is it, a minute and a half? When they're done, the judge is not going to hold up nines and tens. Great job. They're going to say, we've never seen anything like this, but not because it was good. That figure skater is unfaithful with what they've been entrusted. You know how hard it is to get an opportunity to go to the Olympics? Could you imagine being an Olympic figure skater? You've worked your whole life to be on that stage and you go out there on the ice and you just stand there. And when you're done, no judge is gonna say, well done. The job you did with the opportunity you had to to demonstrate to the world the gift that you've been given and how hard you've worked, it was masterful going to be the exact opposite people are going to look on and say what a fool worked their whole life for the opportunity to go to the olympics and then they got there and they were so unfaithful with all of it why but i gotta tell you as I, i i give you this example this illustration i'm on a level with you this morning too many of us approach the gospel and our day of reckoning with Jesus like this figure skater. I went to church. I knew some of the answers. I tried hard. I was better than that person. And we're gonna stand before Jesus. And we're gonna expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It grieves me to my soul the number of people who expect to stand before Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant who may just hear, depart from me, I never knew you. This is a reality, folks. That's that's what we're going to hear. It's either well done, good and faithful servant or depart from me, I never knew you. And so the question this morning as we finish, His faithfulness is ingredient number three for making disciples. If Jesus came today, would you be found faithful? Let's pray. Father, the expectation is great. Your word is very clear, God, that your design and your desire for those who name the name of Jesus to make disciples, to live their lives according to what your word teaches, striving to be found faithful. But God, we know ultimately that in and of ourselves we can't be found faithful. There is a prerequisite to be found, being found faithful, and that is faith in Christ. I don't believe it's coincidence that before Paul told Timothy in Second Timothy 2 to entrust the gospel to faithful people, he started by talking about people must be born again. They must be strengthened in Christ. Because without faith in Christ, you cannot be found faithful. And so God, I pray this morning for the one who, maybe that's where they're at. This, this conversation about being born again, trust in Christ, salvation, all of this is kind of foggy or fuzzy. God, I just pray today for clarity and I pray for understanding for the one who maybe is kind of trying to sift through some of that. But I pray, God, today especially for those who would claim to know you. If we know you, we've been entrusted with the the, the very thing that is worth more than anything else. Known to man in our world, our universe, anything. Are we faithful with it? Is it preeminent in our lives? God, do we merely think that just showing up is going to garner the prize? I pray today, God, that you would work in the hearts of each of us. That you would challenge us, God. That you would stir us to be mindful of the fact that your expectation is faithfulness. And that we can't achieve it on our own. And that if we just merely show up, we're going to be found unfaithful. And so we thank you today, God, for your faithfulness. I believe it was Paul that told Timothy, even God, when we are faithless, you are faithful. And so I just praise and thank you for that today. I thank you, God, that in the midst of so many uncertainties in life, God, there is one certainty. God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So help us, God, to be confident because of your faithfulness and help us strive to be faithful because of your faithfulness. May you be glorified as you work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.